Okay. Um, Palm Sunday's here. Passion Week's here. We're all excited. But here's, here's the question. What if, what if it didn't happen? Right, that's the question. We've got trouble, Joe says. We, we do. We've got trouble. If it didn't happen, Paul would say, we're of all men most to be pitied. And so we thought we'd talk a little bit about that today. How do we know it happened? Primarily through this book, the Bible, right? But how do we know the Bible is God's word? Do you ever think about that? Do you ever question it? We should question it. How do we know this is something that we should follow? And that's what we're going to start with today. We're starting a new uh, series, um, a new sermon series, and we're calling it uh, We Got Questions. We're going to look at some hot-button questions and issues that we have. And the first place to start is, is the Bible even legitimate to start with? Because if it is, you know, one person believes it is. But for the rest of you, um, <laughs> we, we've got to determine whether this thing is the real McCoy. Because if it isn't, then we've got problems. And if it is, then we can move on from here. So we're going to jump into that today. And the first question that I'm going to ask you as we look into whether the Bible is God's word, is do we have original manuscripts? You ever think about that? Do we have the original manuscript of the Bible? What's the answer? Do we? Some people say yes. Anybody want to venture and say no? Nobody says no? Yeah, because that might look bad. Okay, here's the, the, the answer. Can I get a drum roll? No, we don't have a drummer up here right now. Okay, I've got a couple people. Okay, here's the answer. The answer is no, we don't. So see, nobody wanted to say that, but it was the right answer. And you were thinking it, some of you, no, we don't. So let's go home. Forget about the meal, okay? It's all over. Well, not really. We don't have any manuscripts of anything that far back. They're all, they've all disintegrated. They're gone. So how in the world do we know that anything is accurate from that period? You ever think about that? This is how we know. It's actually easy and it's difficult. That sounds like a politician now, right? Okay, here's, here's what you do is you go and you find the oldest copies you can find and then you take them and you put them side by side and you look at them and you see whether they're accurate with each other. If they're all saying the same thing, you've got a lot of accuracy. If they aren't, you've got some problems. The easy part is going ahead and doing that. You can see it pretty clearly. The hard part is it's, it's a long, hard process. It takes thousands of years. And they, these guys that wrote it, there were people that worked full-time writing the Bible out. They would, they would copy it word for word, letter for letter, trying to get it just perfect, and they passed it down. So we have thousands of copies. So people have had to compare thousands of copies for thousands of years. And in the last couple hundred years, for example, there really aren't any changes. We pretty much have gone over it about as thoroughly as we could possibly go over it. And what we found is that it's incredibly accurate. We can compare them and they all, it all lines up. Amazing. Do we have some errors? We do. But if you have a study Bible, for example, most study Bibles will actually record for you any questionable word. If there's anything of any significance, they'll tell you this one's a little bit questionable. Um, the kinds of questions we have, grammar, 
you know, they leave out commas and things like that, um, and it kind of runs the sentence together. We're not for sure what's going on there. Uh, spelling, misspell words occasionally, or leave out a word, and it's obvious that there's a word missing. We don't know what word it is. But that's a very small percentage, and it has really no bearing on the outcome of the message. They're just insignificant. The biggest question marks we have is periodically, in the New Testament, for example, there are two passages in the New Testament that are questionable. Um, and I'll tell you what they are. I mean, it's no problem. In fact, in my Bible, actually marks them out and tells you these are questionable passages. And the two question marks are uh, Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, and John chapter 7, verses 53 through chapter 8, verse 11. So, so take them out. Doesn't make any difference. It really has no bearing with the rest of the, the Bible. So, you know, you take, you know, say 95% of the Bible, roughly speaking, is accurate. So 3% of it, you know, is words missing and that kind of stuff. And maybe 2% of it is a couple passages that we throw out. And the rest of it's 100% accurate. So just go with this part that you know is 100% accurate. You come out with the same thing. It's actually incredible that we've been able to even do that. So what is the problem, though, with that? If it's, if it's so accurate, why do we have a problem? The problem comes usually with how you determine that you're going to read the Bible. If you read it like creative literature and you say, anything goes, you're going to come up with any different position, Right? But if you go to it and you say, what was the original intent of the authors? What was the context? What were they writing? What was the language they were writing in? It's amazing. There's this miraculous link that we have that goes through all human history, and we're all at the same place, and we all basically believe the same thing. Is that wild? I mean, God has brought it all together. We're part of a group of people that goes back all the way past the, Old Te- to the beginning of the Old Testament, all the way down to today, that basically believe in the same general you know, teachings. And everybody else is all over the place. They can't figure out where they're at. Uh, Absolutely amazing how God has brought that together. Archaeology also supports uh, what we believe in. In fact, archaeology has never ruled against the Bible. It's always ruled for the Bible up till now. And we keep finding things like uh, the Gospel of Luke. They just found a a Gospel of Mark. This is why the Dead Sea Scrolls and stuff are so important. We have all these different copies, and these copies keep coming up, and they keep validating that what the Bible says is true. And Mark comes up, and it shows that there's, we just found in Egypt a new copy of the book of Mark, and it looks like it's an earlier copy. They can date it earlier, and if they're able to date it earlier, that shows once again you know, the accuracy of Scripture, that it's actually closer to when it happened. Here's a classic one. Remember Christmas this last year? Not too long ago. Christmas narrative. We went over Luke chapter 2, verse 2. And it says that Quirinius was a governor. And then it said, people said, well, there wasn't ever a Quirinius that was recorded in any place in history. So that was, the, the skeptics would say, that's an example of the Bible being false. Until they found a little coin of Quirinius as governor that proved that he was. And so we keep seeing that kind of confirmation again and again and again. Uh, people say, well, what about Translation. Translation can be difficult, but man, I've read the Bible in the original languages and I've read it in English and it's really not that significant of a difference. And you today can go online and look up every word if you want and check it out. So essentially what we have is what was said. And there's almost no question 
at all about it. We, we've gone over it so much that we really know what it is. Let me, let me illustrate this by showing the difference between what we know in the New Testament today, because people will question the New Testament and its validity, compared to something that's very relevant. If you are in eighth grade and you are going into Oakdale High this next year and you are going into an AP English class, this is what I understand. This is, this is how they generally do it. If you're going to AP English, you have to take what class? Anybody know? What book do you have to read? Ancient Literature. The Odyssey. The, and the Odyssey or the Iliad, right? I think you read the Odyssey, but there's the Iliad is the other book that Homer wrote, okay? So we have an example of the Iliad. So the Iliad was written by Homer, considered one of the great works of um, ancient literature. So let's compare that with the New Testament because we, you know, we'll study Homer and your teachers will teach it and they'll say, this is Homer. And a lot of times it's like, this is just a fact. This is what Homer wrote. This is, you know, what was written at that time. So let's compare it with the Bible. Uh, and there's some handouts for this too that I think help us and I think we'll have some stuff up on, us, on the, um, the screen as well. But Homer's Iliad was written about 900 BC. The Bible, the New Testament was written between 40 and 100 AD. That's quite a difference. So Homer's earliest copy came 400, was 400 BC. We found the earliest copy of Homer, uh, Homer's Iliad. The earliest copy of the New Testament, 125 AD. That's a difference. So, so from the time Homer wrote Iliad until the time we found a copy, 500 years. From the time the Bible was completed till the time we found a copy, 25 years. How many copies do we have of Homer's to compare for accuracy? 643, and it's full of errors. We don't know what he wrote or what he didn't write. Whatever you're going to study, we don't know what version you're going to use. We don't know if he wrote it or not, but that's what you'll be studying. But the Bible, we have over 24,000 copies. We can be pretty certain what was written, what was in, what wasn't. You see what I'm saying? Pretty accurate. But here's the problem is, the next question is, so what? Was this just good literature? I mean, Homer wrote a good book, so these guys wrote a good book. Where does it say that the Bible is a supernatural book that we should follow in our lives, that this is God's word? Where does it say that? Let's take a look. Well, you're getting ahead of me. This guy's shouting out the answers here. That's all right. You're on top of it. Good job, Brandon. Um, Timothy is a place we're going to look. And, uh, but we're going to start first at the Old Testament. Let's see what, what the Bible says about the Old Testament. Internal evidence. Let's look what Jesus says. Go to Matthew chapter 5, um, and we'll look at verses 17 through 18. Matthew 5, 17 through 18, this is Jesus himself speaking, and he said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished." Not the smallest yod, which is the smallest letter, or the smallest tittle, the smallest slash of the pen, you know, marking of the pen in Hebrew, will disappear from this book. So this book is written in Hebrew. What is the Law and the Prophets? What he's saying about the Law and the Prophets is it's a supernatural book that he has come to fulfill, and that it is so important that not one letter, not one stroke of the pen will disappear from this book for all of eternity. This is a supernatural book. The question we have before us is, what was the law and the prophets in Jesus' day? We know. We can know for sure what it was. You know what it was? 
It's what we call the Old Testament today. Jesus himself confirmed that the Old Testament was supernatural and it was God's word and that we're to take it as such. So it's black and white. In fact, it was never really a big question among Christians. They, in the councils of, of Jamnia before the New Testament was even completed in 1890, and then again they met again in 118, they confirmed it. Case closed. Old Testament, supernatural book of God, everybody accepted it. The Jewish people were already accepting it, among them Jesus and his followers, and Jesus just confirmed it, and then everybody else did. That's good. How about the New Testament? A little bit more tricky, right? Because Jesus has left the scene before it's completed. So how do we know that the New Testament is really what God says it is? Well, let's take a look at that. Um, first of all, let's look at 2 Timothy. I want to look at two passages that are interesting here. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Okay, hang on to that one. Now listen to this one. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. And now get this, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The word for Holy Spirit in Greek is hagia pneuma. Pneuma is the word we have for breath. You can see it ties in in both places. What we're seeing is the Bible claims that in a supernatural way, the Holy Spirit breathes through us and carries us along and enables us, or at least enabled them, we should say, to write what God wanted them to write. It's not mere dictation. Remember, God told Moses what to write with the Ten Commandments. Remember that? He said, you write this commandment, this commandment, this commandment. But it's a little bit different there because what God says here is, I'm just going to write through you. And I'll use your personality. I'll use your writing style. I'll use your language and culture. But I'm going to render what I want you to say is what you're going to say. And people need to take it that way. This is my word. This is what I want them to know and how that, what they should follow. That's pretty cool. And that's just a couple passages. We can bring that out of other places too. So God says this is a supernatural book. The question is which books in the New Testament are supernatural and which ones aren't? You ever think about that? How do you know? Well, listen to what happens in 2 Peter. Remember, Peter was the most outspoken person in the church at that time. He was the most prominent Christian at this time in the first century. And Peter says in um, 2 Peter chapter 3, let's actually jump down to verse 15. He says, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Do you understand what he's saying? He's equating Paul's writings with scriptures. He's saying Paul's writings are on par with the Old Testament. Andrew Walls, an Oxford grad who is a, a 
professor, I think, now at the University of Aberdeen. He studied this extensively, and one of the things he pointed out is that what they did in the early synagogues is when they, what, what they would do for their services, they'd pull out a passage of Scripture, read it, and then talk about it, like Jesus did in Luke chapter 4. And that's what they did in the early church. They would take out an Old Testament passage, read it, and then they'd talk about it from a new perspective. All right? Makes sense? But get this. What happened is over a period of time, they started reading other writings and considered them Scripture. And that was already happening before the Bible was completed. The question for us is, what books were they? And Peter tells us, Paul's writings, the writings you have from Paul, which would be the ones that are still in existence today, there may be others, we don't know of any of them, but those that are in existence today, those ones that have been passed down, those, those are legitimate. Those are, those are scripture. Now listen what Paul says if you go to um, 1 Timothy Chapter 5, verse 18. Paul says, the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain. Now that's a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. But then he says, and the worker deserves his wages, which in context is believed to be from Jesus in Luke chapter 10, verse 7. So at this point, Paul seems to be equating Luke's writings with scripture. Luke wrote one book, but it was a two-volume book. It was the Gospel of Luke, and it was the Acts of the Apostles. So if we just say that Luke and Paul's writings were legit, guess what? We've already covered over half the New Testament. Is that fascinating? I mean, we got it there already. So we're already very close, but we still have to affirm, you know, for sure, how did they get the rest of the books? How do we know about the rest of the books? Well, that's how we're going to conclude today. We'll look at that. Take a little jog down history to, to understand this because we have to look at some external evidence. The first thing is it took them a long time. The Bible was completed around AD 96 or about 80, 100, somewhere in that area. And the first time that we actually have the Bible compiled, Old and New Testament, in a translation is in the year AD 400. 300 years. Why so long? They were slow readers. <laughs> I don't know. It, it took them a long time, but it seems long to us because it used to be that they'd say that knowledge uh, multiplied itself, you know, doubled every hundred years, and now it can do that in a year because of um, all the information that we have, you know, electronically with modern technology. Isn't that amazing? And so for us, everything seems slow. We live in this world where everything goes fast, but in their world, everything went slow. For example, if they were going to pass this on, they had to handwrite it. They had to hand copy it. That would take a long time. Then they had to hand deliver it. They would walk to the place. Usually they walked to the person and handed it to a person, and they handed it to another person. By the way, it's very similar to what we often say in our church, that God has strategically and supernaturally placed 8 to 15 people in your life for you to influence for him. And that's how the gospel spread. People went to people, and they just loved on them, and they talked to them, they invited them to church, and then they handed them, when they started churches, they handed them some of the scriptures, and then they copied them, and they handed them to somebody else. They had to get through the whole Roman Empire, which was modern-day Europe and parts of North Africa. How long would that take? Now, throw into that that there's persecution, and people were trying to destroy the Bible, and some of these people gave their lives to protect it. That's pretty amazing. I mean, these guys... Uh, really put their lives on the line for us to get this Bible. And it took a long time. 
But even the length of it, I think, gives evidence when we see the, the factors that factor in um, to it during this time. One question that I had early on was, didn't anybody else have anything to say, like the second generation Christians, the followers of Christ? Didn't those guys ever stand up and say, I'll tell you what books were, are, are in, that we should see as scripture? And the answer to that question is, actually, they did. And uh, we can see lists of some of those guys. We see the guys that Jesus discipled and then the guys after him. And I think we're going to put a slide up in a little bit. But there's different guys that you can see that became one of the, the main leaders in the church, the early pastors, missionaries, evangelists, and so forth. And when we look at those guys, we, you know, they're, they're really interesting. We have all their writings. And they're passed down to us because they were really respected, and they were respected from each other. And you can read them, and they read very much like modern-day believers and followers of Christ. And you know what they did is they would quote in their writings different places as Scripture. So it seems like a good idea would be if we could go to those guys and count and look at all the books that they quoted from, then we could figure out what they considered to be the Bible. Does that make sense? Would that be like a good idea, a fair thing to try? Well, I wasn't the first one to think of that. They actually did that. And people will go through and they'll read all their writings and they'll set them side by side and they'll start counting. What books do they refer to here and there and there? And a lot of people have said this, but it's fascinating. J. Harold Greenlee is one of the most brilliant um, uh, New Testament Greek scholars uh, in history. And after studying this, he said, after reading these numerous quotes, he says, they are so extensive that the New Testament could virtually be reconstructed from them without the use of New Testament manuscripts. So right then and there, we already pretty much know the 27 books of the Bible just by reading about what the second century Christians wrote their leaders of second, second generation. Isn't that amazing? Why didn't they do that? They couldn't. They couldn't mass produce them that fast. They didn't have all the copies in their hands. So we in, in now can look back and we know that. The real question for us is trying to determine, it, are, are they going to be consistent or are they going to deviate from the 27 that they said they had originally? And we'll see that it all comes out perfect just as they said from the beginning. It just all falls into place in a miraculous way. Um, they pass it on from generation to generation. And so from, you know, it's kind of through discipleship, they would just keep passing it on from person to person. Um, but then we see that the first person to put up uh, a New Testament was a guy named Marcion. He did it between 140 to 150. He decided to be the first guy, so let's put this all together and make it a book. Here's the problem with Marcion, is Marcion was a heretic. You know what a heretic is? It's a fancy way for calling somebody a false teacher. And what he did, and we know this too from his writings, is we have the copies of the original you know, uh, manuscripts, and he would take out any passages that didn't fit his theology. Imagine if we all did that today, we wouldn't have much left, would we? All the stuff we don't want to hear, right? And so he, he just took out everything. He said, I don't, I don't want to believe that. So he took it out. But what it did is it got the other guys inspired to try to do something. And the first effort was the hexapla. Anybody know what hex means? Hexa? Six. Origen was this guy. He was one of the most brilliant men in history. And he was a scholar. And he was a writer. And he wrote the hexapla. And what he did is he took portions of the Bible and he translated it into six different languages. Can you imagine that? 
Too bad he didn't go with one because he might have gotten it all done and we'd gotten done a lot earlier, but he, he ended up working on six and died before he finished. Um, but in the process, he had a student named Eusebius, and Eusebius was not as brilliant, but he was good at compiling things, and he discovered the canon of moratory. And canon is another word, word for scripture, basically, in, uh, among the Latin, Latin language. And what it was is they found these books that everybody had kind of agreed were the Bible um, around the year AD 200, and he presented it to everybody. He found it, and he presented it to everybody in the year AD 325. 22 of the 27 books are in it. They pretty much compiled it all at one shot. And then Constantine became emperor of Rome and he asked everybody to come to the Nicene Council for the first time they could come out in the open and talk about all their problems. And one of the things they had to determine is what is our Bible going to be? Well, they got sidetracked on all sorts of arguments and things. But one guy named Athanasius said, if we can't argue anything unless we have some kind of standard. Otherwise, it's one person's voice against the other. So we need to know what the Bible is. And he kept pushing and pushing and pushing until finally, in 367, uh, he wrote the festal letter. In his festal letters, these are the 27 books. We need to settle on these books. We need to settle on them or we're never going to resolve any conflicts because we don't have a final, found, final say. And these are the books that we've always agreed on. And some people are dragging their feet possibly because they don't want to hear what they say, but this is what we have. And so they sat down and they had two major councils. The council of, they always had councils, these guys. So uh, the council of Hippo, uh, yeah, that was, in North, that was in North Africa, not San Diego Zoo. You know, Hippo really, really is a place, I guess, uh, 393 and Carthage in 397. And let's just look at some of the questions that they asked. These are the questions, they, they wanted to make absolutely sure because this was so important to them that even though they already had all this evidence at this time, they wanted to make absolutely certain. So here's the questions they asked. First of all, is it authoritative? Does it have the sense of thus saith the Lord? So like there were two books. There was this book called the Didache, which is called the, uh, means the 12. And what it was is it was, a, it was a manual for church. How to do baptisms, how to do communion, stuff like that. Interesting book, helpful. But they said, that's not scripture. Just a helpful book. There is a book called Shepherd of Hermas. It's kind of a fantasy book, you know, and you know, it was just a creative book. It wasn't really a bad book. It just it didn't claim any authority or anything. So I said, fine, you know, you can read it if you want, but it's not scripture. It had to have kind of that oomph, you know, thus saith the Lord. This is what God says you should do. And then the second thing they looked at is, is it prophetic? Who wrote it? Do we know the writer? Was he a respected person within the church? The only book they weren't for sure about was Hebrews, and most people thought it was Paul. They didn't know for sure, and they decided to pass it because it, it, it was great in every other category. Um, but the other books, they, at that time, today people will say, well, we don't know who wrote this book. Well, they all knew, and they lived back then, so they didn't seem to have a problem with it. They, they believed that these were all the writers. And then the next thing is they ask is, is it authentic? Is it real? For example, you take a book like um, The Gospel of Thomas, Thomas was a great leader in the church, but guess what? Um, he was dead by the time it was written. So we know he didn't write it. Um, and then what it says differs from the Old Testament and from the other writings in the New Testament. It was never seriously considered until it became um, popular as a controversial bestseller book and movie. But the Bible, you know, the early days, those guys, they never thought that this, this was the real deal. Um, is it dynamic? Does it change your life? 
And was it received, collected, read, and used? Was it accepted by the people of God? They settled on it. And the first one was compiled. Jerome was a big scholar and translator put together Latin Vulgate, which was uh, the first Bible completed in A.D. 400. So what does it matter? You know, how, how do we respond to this information? You know, knowing now that we can know that the Bible is accurate, we can know that the Bible itself claims to be supernatural, God's word, and we're supposed to follow it, and we can know that it came together in just an indisputable way, really. I mean, all the pieces of the puzzle came together um, through history, 300 years, you can check it all the way through and see it's, these were the books. They recognized it at the beginning. They confirmed it later on. We know these are the books. So what difference does that make for us? I think the, the real takeaway here is, is what we do with this book and how we read it. I like the way Mark Twain put it very eloquently and very honestly. He said, it ain't those parts of the Bible I can't understand that bother me. It is the parts I do understand. Sometimes we're a bit like Marcy and we want to take out the parts that we don't want to follow. And I think what happens when we look at Scripture here is we say we need to follow what the Bible says. And we need to believe it because it's what God's given us. There's no question not to. Where's an area where you might be minimizing it or a sin that you might be justifying? And I encourage you to to make sure that you're doing, you know, you're doing what God says. And I encourage you to read your Bibles. Uh, we have uh, the Daily Bread, a little devotional guide on the back tables. Uh, grab one of those, or you can get it on a nap. But read your Bibles and get involved in a small group where we're studying the Bibles and get to know it because it's what God wants us to know. It's his word. It's his message to us. On the very positive side of it, consider this. Everything God says in the Bible is true for us which means God created you. He made you who you, excuse me, who you are. He, he loves you for who you are. He has things that you can do for him, both on earth and through his kingdom, through history, through eternity. He's made you, you know, in his own image, and he is calling us to be in relationship with him. God loves you so much that he died on the cross for your sins, and you can know that that happened. It's in the book. It's recorded. We know the book is accurate. We have all the historical account. Jesus died on the cross for you, and he rose from the grave to conquer sin and death once and for all. You can know that and be encouraged and not be ashamed to share that with people along with some of the things that we've talked about today. Have conversations with people about this and, and talk to them what you've been learning about the authenticity of the Bible. Invite them to church and just be their friend and encourage them um, because all this stuff has really happened. And if you've not yet come into a relationship with Jesus, I encourage you to, um, you know, actually I encourage you to grab one of these bookmarks that we have at the back. If you see these, we have some of these bookmarks around. Um, on one side, it just talks about, uh, it's as simple as ABC. And we talk about this a lot. And there are verses from the Bible to back up everything that we say, even here. But in the interest of time, let me just say that, you know, we, we need to admit that, you need to admit that you're a sinner and in need of the Savior. Believe that Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sin and choose to follow Christ and place your faith in him alone. Say that each week because we want you to stop and think about uh, who Jesus is and what he's done for you and you need to surrender your life to him. And if you do that, please come and talk to us today. One other thing uh, that comes 
comes to mind. That is that people sometimes say, well, all this is fine, but I don't know that it's relevant for me today because it's so ancient. Let's understand when the Bible was written, they didn't think it, it worked because it was changing the tradition. It was too modern. Today, the Bible has seemed as too ancient. But the Bible answers that question itself because it talks about Jesus, whose very life is the message of the Bible. And it says this about him in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. It says, uh, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This book is relevant always and forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for giving us the Bible as a guideline for our life. Uh, thank you for the encouragement that it brings us, for the message that it tells us. That it, it's the, the message primarily comes to us today through the Bible, that we can know you personally and live with you and experience you in our lives. Uh, pray that everybody here would come into that saving knowledge of you and that each of us would grow uh, in our relationship with you and experience you in your fullness both here and for eternity. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.